evaluation diagram. Yeah, we're live, Joe. Okay. We'll talk, uh, talk yeah. about it after, but. Hey everybody, my name's Ryan Kokot. I represent IKNK Brands. We're a, uh, at this point, an international company with um, operations both in Colombia and the United States, specifically in California. I'm here with Joe Devlin, my coworker, and I'll let him uh, introduce himself. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Joe Devlin, um, Vice President, Senior Vice President with um, uh, Iconic Farms, uh, IKNK Brands. Um, as Ryan said, we are now a California-based but international cannabis company, um, and I'm also the former regulator from the city of Sacramento. Awesome. Thanks. Oh, you're already getting comments. I don't know if you can see it on your end or not, but Nate Bradley commented, uh, nice glasses, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The joys so, of getting older, right? My arm got shorter. I, uh, I wear contacts regularly and I, it's weird. I had gotten a brand new pair of glasses and I almost fell like straight down the courthouse steps one day because the, the actual lenses are so thick because my eyes are so bad that like it completely threw off your depth perception. And one of the DAs actually grabbed me by the arm as I was going down the stairs. So I haven't, uh, have not worn glasses since that day, to be honest with you. So, um, just to give people context, I mean, obviously Joe and I work together and we um, both have been involved, obviously, in the compliance realm, Joe being a regulator. And prior to signing on with IKNK Brands, I worked in the private context with clients and licensing and compliance. So, you know, we constantly have these conversations and there's been at least a handful of times where we've kind of had a conversation, looked at each other and wished, you know, we had recorded it. So that's kind of the intention here is to record these conversations. Today we're going to talk about the ballot initiatives that, that are coming up in California in addition to the elections and what impact, if any, that's going to have on cannabis. But kind of going forward, that's that'll be the gist of, uh, of what we're trying to accomplish here. And personally, as much as the cannabis regulations, I, I definitely like to start to get into um, a lot of the, the compliance and legal concerns that you don't hear about as much um, when it comes to the resources that are out there right now. So um, I guess we can just start with the, Cal the California ballot initiative show. And what do you what's your general take on how things are shaping up next week? Well, uh, ballots have been pouring into the um, county registrar's office. We've seen. Um, record voting uh, for any election um, for um, uh, ballots being turned in up to this point. So it looks like it's going to be a fairly high turnout election, um, which generally bodes well for, uh, you know, both Democrats and kind of progressive uh, issues that are on the ballot. Um, so I, I expect uh, while it's probably going to take a couple of weeks for the ballots to be counting, I expect all of the ballot measures um, or just about all of them um, related to cannabis uh, to, to pass in those jurisdictions. So I think we've got about 20 plus so local ballot initiatives, whether it be a tax or, um, or an advisory measure or an actual ordinance on the ballot across the state. 
can you give a little context just for people who aren't as familiar with this area? Um, you know, what a ballot initiative is and how it works out, how you get it on the ticket, all that kind of stuff, just for context. Yeah, so in a great question. In a nutshell, um, California, uh, during the um, early part of the, 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 the 1900s, um, made some structural reforms, um, and one of them they put in was the uh, initiative um, referendum uh, recall procedure. And so uh, whether it's an item can be placed on the agenda for a public vote at, a, at the local level um, or at the state level, either by that local jurisdiction, by the state legislature, or by that county board of supervisors or city council, um, or um, petitions can be gathered. Um, and you'll often see, you know, prior, you know, to an election year, people are collecting signatures and that's what it is for. You have to get a certain number of percentages relative to the number of people that voted in the last election. Um, and then that measure qualifies, uh, for the ballot. It's, it's honestly not the, the greatest way for shaping policy. And we've probably, uh, really come full circle from what the progressives, um, initially adopted uh, the initiative referendum recall process for um, but at this point it is what it is uh, california utilizes the ballot measure more than any other state in 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 the nation um, and it has become its own industry uh, in and of itself so and it'll be interesting too just to see the impact, not only obviously in the, in the jurisdictions that have initiatives on the ticket, but I'm curious to see if there is going to be a domino effect, if a lot of them do in fact pass, and especially with everything going on financially um, with COVID, I'm interested to see if other cities end up kind of following suit um, within California. What do you, I mean, in terms of, let's say, let's say a ballot initiative passed, passes in a city. What is the timeline in your mind in terms of actual implementation to get a business license up and running? Yeah, it's going to depend on uh, each city um, and and what was on the ballot. Some of the ballot initiatives that are, are or measures that are on the ballot are very specific. They include the ordinance language, they include the zoning, and they include application timelines. Um, and so you know, for those cities, it's going to be um, kind of a hit the ground running scenario following following the election. Uh, for other cities, it's all the way down to um, um, an advisory measure. So in that case, if it's an advisory measure, it's still up to that county's or city's um, council or board of supervisors discretion as to kind of when they would take that up and... Um, and, and if they should pass it, the, the council still has discretion of whether to approve something or not, because it's just an advisory measure. So for those cities, that process is going to take, um, you know, months and months. I think the kind of overall what we'll see in 2020, though, is going to be a number of cities continuing to, to, to uh, legalize cannabis um, as we're really rolling into what was a perfect storm um, of an unfortunate events for local governments. Um, you know, we have to remember before COVID hit, 
most local governments across the state of California already had um, uh, budget deficits that they could forecast um, really beginning around 2021, 2022, 2023, depending on their CalPERS structure. So these budget deficits were, are largely driven by CalPERS contributions um, already existed pre-COVID. And so you factor in COVID um, and the decline in sales tax revenue and everything else. And I think we're going to see local jurisdictions up and down the state really um, kind of digging through the couch cushions, if you will, uh, to find some revenue. Um, and cannabis is probably the only one, um, the only industry that they could just say yes to and start generating some new tax revenues. Outside of that, um, it's going to be you know sales and use taxes, and there's a number of those on the ballot. I'm watching some of those um, to see if those pass. Um, it's going to be potentially a really interesting uh, time. Yeah. This is certainly not a comprehensive list. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Yeah, so it's certainly not a comprehensive list, but I've got another 12 cities that have sales and use taxes on the ballot measure that are not related to cannabis. Um, so um, local governments are looking for money all over the place. And if you're if you find yourself in a city or you want to at least open a business in a city that's considering cannabis on a ballot initiative or you're I mean, it could be outside California. If you're in a position where you think you have a good idea of where things are going to open up I, in terms of applications and not just waiting around for it to happen, I think you can do one of two things. You can check out the state application in your state because inevitably these cities and counties are looking to the state for ideas to you know, create an application process. And I would also look to neighboring cities as far as if there's any cities near um, the one that you're trying to get into, most of these localities do not reinvent the wheel, whether it be in California, Massachusetts, Michigan, I've looked at as well. It's usually pretty streamlined. What will be interesting, though, in terms of application requirements in these new cities that open up is are you going to have to have, I mean, you typically have to have some semblance of like a security and safety plan, but it would not surprise me to see COVID-specific questions because I think COVID is, uh, is here for the foreseeable future and it's something businesses have to be considering for sure, especially consumer-facing businesses like retail. Um, I, it's definitely something to kind of be thinking about, even if you're already open, but especially if you uh, are thinking of opening. Well, it's, it's COVID probably has to have slowed um, the rollout for the cannabis lounge, right? I mean, we've only got a handful of jurisdictions in the state that have it. Um, that have allowed lounges, um, you know, and for those that were probably contemplating it, I think COVID probably shelved that consideration, you know, for the foreseeable future. So, um, you know, that's going to be another one to, to just want we'll to kind of sit and watch. But I, I don't I don't think on-site consumption lounges are, are really going to – I think that's going to be tough for them to get some momentum going back on, on that front, even in the places that are looking to add storefront retail, um, kind of going that extra mile and adding in the, the lounge. Um, Maybe more, maybe more problematic because they're not going to have all of those answers, right? Of how to really run a lounge, 
you know, during a pandemic. Do you think lounges, you know, aside from COVID, do you think lounges, lounges should be their own license type? I mean, in California right now, it's basically just tethered into a retail license, but do you think it should be its own independent uh, license type? Because I think you could go either way with this. I'm not even sure how I feel about that question, to be honest with you, but I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there, you know, definitely needs to be some structure and regulation around it. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. That's a tough one. I don't know if it needs to be, I'm not necessarily in favor of creating more and more licenses for, for for different uses. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I mean, how do you regulate the, you know, how do you regulate the, the, the private entity that's, you know, that's, that has a membership driven organization and allows their members to consume on site when they're not selling it. Um, I don't know. I mean, you start to kind of wade into some, some individual liberties almost there, right? Yeah. It almost, it almost reminds me of the discussions and we can talk about this on maybe next week or something, but the discussions that we have with like, packaging and labeling considerations and advertising, it brings up the same, you know, question that it does in that context, which is to what extent does the state have jurisdiction over certain activities? Um, And I, it's the same kind of deal when you're talking about, like you said, a private club. And I mean, I guess, I don't know. I, that's why I said at the outset, I, I don't really know how I feel about that. And I, I know, I know Massachusetts has them. I don't, I don't know that Massachusetts has its own independent license type. I know they had like eight or nine municipalities throughout Massachusetts that were authorized to in fact have a lounge. So you had to kind of meet that criteria. Um, but I would have to double check. I don't think they have it like an independent license type that you could apply for. I think it's just an arm of retail like it is here in California. Yeah. So well, we also have at the state level, too, or at the at, across the country at the various states. I mean, we've got what five other ballot initiatives in in, in other states: um, New Jersey, Montana, Arizona, Missouri, and I think I'm forgetting one. But um, yeah, those ones. I mean, they've already. Uh, those ballot initiatives have already uh, survived a few court challenges um, just to remain on the ballot. Um, and, you know, I, I think those two are going to, are, are, are going to pass. And so what is this, I mean, how many States are going to legalize cannabis before, before the federal government actually, actually is, you know, kind of, you know, really forced to do something about it. I mean, we're going to be up to, is that going to be 31 states if all five of these? Yeah, I think it's, it's over 30. And we're going to, I'm going to have uh, Jess Gonzalez on with us next week and she's an attorney in New Jersey. Um, So I'm interested to see her perspective. And what's interesting about the tri-state area in general is that they were, I think there was talks about having like a compact for interstate amongst those states commerce. So to your point or to your question, you know, what's it going to take for the feds to actually do something about this? Um, 
I think the first answer is I, I think we're handcuffed a lot by international developments. Um, but in terms of domestic developments, I think states taking that next step to basically open up interstate commerce in spite of federal law could kind of push the needle a little bit as well. But that actually kind of segues, um, you know, into the next topic here, which when it comes to federal legalization, does it matter who's president or should people, in your opinion, be more focused on who's in the House and the Senate um, in terms of a bill making its way through Congress and actually being signed into law? Yeah, I, I think it's more important as to like who's going to take the Senate. Um, I've heard a leading question. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, I've heard, you know, mixed stuff from from various people within um, you know, the president's campaign staff is in support of legalizing it. His White House staff says absolutely no. You know, I think if we've learned anything over the last four years, you know, our current president kind of marches to his own drum and um, does what he's going to do. Um, and so I think he's a little bit of a wild card right now. The, I think the biggest obstacle are, is the Republicans in, in the Senate. Um, and if the Democrats are able to take control of both houses and the presidency, which is, you know, an if, I mean, it doesn't happen very frequently. Um, I, I, I think we'll, I think that they're regardless of, of, of who wins the presidency, if the Democrats win the Senate, I think we could be looking at federal legalization inside of, inside of 18 months. I agree. And I mean, the, the proof is in the pudding to the extent that, you know, there's been a number of votes that have made it through the House to only to some of them, not even some of the bills haven't even been voted on in the Senate. They just die in the Senate. But I mean, how do you reconcile that with I keep reading articles that cannabis is becoming less and less of a partisan issue? Um, and maybe those articles are really referring to just, you know, people just constituency across the board and not necessarily politicians. But um, and I'm not looking to make this a political discussion by any stretch of the imagination, but it does it does seem that there is still a, a political bent when it comes to cannabis, at least in the Senate. It seems to indicate that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, well, certainly, I mean, there's still strong prohibitions in a lot of um, states in the center of, of the country. And, you know, for better, for worse, our structure of government gives, you know, Nebraska, Wyoming, and Montana and the same number of senators as California. I mean, I mean those three states have like a million people in them. Um, so the historically, just, you know, skews more conservative, just, you know, um, but I, but I think the politics around cannabis continue to change uh, because the opinion, the public opinions around it continue to change. More and more people every day have that experience of, um, oh, you know, my mother or my aunt or my dad was having fill in the blank issue, and cannabis helped that. Um, and you know, you only have to look at the data from California's legalization. 
And on January 1st, 2018, the single largest demographic that entered the legal marketplace was over the age of 55. Um, right. And you know, those tend to be a little bit more, um, uh, you know, tend to vote more consistently, certainly, um, and certainly include um, uh, a more conservative um uh you know lean to them so i think the politics and opinion the public opinions are, are are changing around cannabis and it's ultimately you know kind of slowly trickling up to our electeds you know it, i can tell you just from reading over the last year or so or even longer than that now but trump has been pretty inconsistent you know it, it, he on the one hand seems to be indicating he's going to let, let the states decide. But on the other, when they recently passed, you know, the rider protections and the spending bill that protect, um, to this point, it's only been medical marijuana pro state programs that are in strict compliance with those programs. I think they added adult use earlier this year. He had basically taken the position that he, in terms of his pre presidential powers, was not obligated to abide by that. That may have been more of a, a statement about um, drawing the line in the sand in terms of what he's able to do, at more so than cannabis. But I mean, I guess the question goes back to you know where what's really moving the needle? Is it, is it Congress or is it the president? And I would take the position um, that it's definitely Congress is what's standing in the way right now. Um, but even just speaking more generally about federal legalization, it's always been for me, and especially since 2016 and seeing Prop 64 kind of develop in California, it's your classic, be careful what you wish for type scenario. <laughs> um, what do you see it looking like, I guess would be my question. I was gonna ask you the same thing. You know, uh, my, my hope is that the, the federal government honestly just deschedules it and leaves it up to the states. Um, because if they get in the business of trying to regulate it, uh, yeah, that seems that seems like that could be hugely problematic. Um, and set up a scenario. I, I I don't know. I mean, if this if the feds come in and say this is now our domain, we're going to regulate this under under the CSA. I mean, what does that what does what does that do to 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 the individual state programs at that point? I mean, it's going to have a dramatic impact on the medical market. And we've talked about this, I think, a couple of times now. I, I don't see it being a possibility for someone to be to be able to call a cannabis product a medical product without it going through some level of, of federal oversight. And I would assume that the FDA would be leading that charge, which, I mean, it, you know, it's prohibitively expensive even for large companies to go that route. So that's what scares me. I mean, I, I don't think... I don't think you're going to be able to call something a medical product without it coming out of a GMP certified facility and just, you know, that end of things in terms of compliance measures, I, I think is just going to cripple, you know, small farmers, especially more so than you know, what you're seeing in the adult use markets across the country, but especially in California. So I just, that's my concern and all of it. I think, from a criminal justice perspective, it's going to be huge. And I think even decriminalization is really going to move the needle. And if that's where we start, which 
as I understand it, that's what Biden has been pushing in terms of his plans if and when he gets elected. But um, I guess it's really almost, it's two perspectives. You look at it from a commercial perspective and you look at it from an individual um, criminal justice reform perspective. And I, I think the latter is going to be, you're going to see a lot of good things happen. I don't necessarily know it's, it's going to be great for the majority of, of business, though. Yeah. But, if the states created uh, an interstate compact for commerce, is that waiting? I mean, is that even constitutional or is that kind of waiting into a... So it, it, you get to Undefined, undefined space. I mean, interstate commerce is the realm of the federal government. Right. Well, when you get into a preemption argument with the, with the Controlled Substances Act, and what's interesting is that by and large, I mean, obviously cannabis is a Schedule One substance, and you know the programs that you see in states are in contradiction to that. You know, and in, in all likelihood, we would be pre. They, not in all likelihood, they would be preempted by federal law if the feds wanted to push it. The reality is, is that the feds, without the cooperation of local and state government, which we're obviously not going to get in this context, just don't have the resources to enforce federal law. That being said, it's not always that simple when it comes to preemption. And your question brings up a good one and you'd have to really dig into the CSA because preemption isn't as simple as saying, oh, federal law, it's illegal, state law it must be illegal too. It, it goes to the, this extends beyond the CSA and to other federal statutes, but you really have to dig into the scope that is laid out in the statute itself to say whether or not a particular action is in fact preempted by federal law. So you see this play out. I think it's playing out to some extent with like uh, uh, insurance benefits and workers comp, all that kind of stuff with cannabis. Because the question becomes, is can a state, especially a state that has legalized cannabis, and this actually just recently come up, came up in Massachusetts, can Massachusetts say that workers' comp does not have to be covered when it comes to cannabis because cannabis is federally legal, despite the fact that they have legalized it at the state level? That's you know kind of the conundrum you find yourself in with the logic that you're seeing in some of these cases. I think in the Massachusetts case that just recently came out, there was actually a provision in state law that overtly said that, that it didn't need to be covered within the cannabis law itself at the state level. But that's, you know, it's a really an analysis of what extent does the statute you're looking at at the federal level go to and does it really cover the circumstances and preempt those circumstances? So I, I would imagine though that uh, the, the federal government isn't going to love the idea of, of interstate commerce. It's really just a jurisdiction issue, um, and all of it. I don't that. And that's why I said before you asked the question, "What's it going to take?" And that would be interesting um, to see play out in terms of what impact it would have on the feds doing something. Well, I think that, you know maybe I'll, there's been a, or will be a bit of a blessing in in the fact that the states have, or that the feds have not really moved uh, towards doing anything. And they have so many states out in front of them um, that have adopted a regulatory framework. 
because um, I think the more states that have adopted it, it's going to make it much harder for the feds to come in and really overlay a regulatory structure that is um, that supplant the, the state systems. Um, I think there'd just be too much of an uproar. Obviously, it's still a possibility, but you know, with now 30 states about to have legalized cannabis, you know, you're going to potentially have a lot of angry senators and, and, and members in, in, in Congress with even such a notion. So maybe, you know, the foot dragging by the feds will end up kind of um, being a blessing and they'll just take the, they'll take the easy way, way out and, and just kind of punt it to the states and hopefully allow interstate commerce and exports. Well, and I like your, your 18 month prediction as opposed to just a year, because what's not talked about enough when we talk about federal legalization is the implementation. I mean, everybody, we're just talking about the decision, the vote, you know, the signing of a bill into law basically, but look what's happening with hemp and specifically with hemp derived CBD and derivatives. Look how long it has taken and it still hasn't come out the FDA to come out with the guidelines in terms of enforcement and whatnot. I mean, they, they've made their point clear in terms of what you can and can't put CBD into, but there isn't a solid regulatory system in place that is putting, you know, producers, manufacturers, retailers on notice as to what their obligations are under federal law. So people are just basically left with a patchwork of state laws um, to work off of. So if that's any indication of how things are going to go when it comes to cannabis, you know, it's going to be problematic. I think the difference is, is kind of like you said, we have all these states that have programs in place. So maybe there's more of a base for the FDA if they do and get, get involved when it comes to marijuana under federal law. Maybe there's more of a base to work off of and you don't uh, reinvent the wheel. But I do think when it comes to the medical market, it's gonna i don't think people are gonna be happy to be honest with you when yeah. things go federally legal unfortunately well certainly there's a very large pharmaceutical industry that um has to at least have um you know one or two eyes on 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 cannabis and cannabis products and it's medical their medical applications right i mean well, even if you want to say, oh, it'll be the difference between, so we have like Epidiolex. So it'll be the difference between Epidiolex and then like an over-the-counter drug that we see, you know, in day-to-day -day when we go to a, like Safeway or wherever. But even that, I mean, I think people underestimate, if you've looked at the FD, FD&C Act, I mean, it's still pretty onerous, even the over-the-counter requirements and what you have to go through to get there, particularly when you're comparing it to what you have to do existing for you know existing cannabis medical programs at the state level and this is all assuming you know if there's any chance for the smaller guy to survive that taxes application fees compliance costs and the like are reduced at the state level as well it's all kind of i mean we think it's bad right now in terms of the costs that it takes to get up and running with be it adult use or medical at the state level it's you know it's going to 10x that probably if we go fed and we're talking a medical program. So that it's already cost prohibitive to open a business. I, I worry it's going to get worse. Right. If and when we go fed, you know, 
Yeah, building standards could change. Um, you know, it, you could go from you know having GMP be a, a a a really good certification all the way up to needing you know a UL certification that's specifically designed for a medical facility, right? And if, that, if that's what it's going to take to grow cannabis, I mean, you'd have to, you'd, you'll have people will having to rebuild their entire cultivation facilities to supply the medical market. Um, yeah, it's it's going to be a crazy election, that's for sure. Uh, and even if you want to anticipate this stuff, you know, and anticipate that these requirements are coming down the pike, it's you're still having to pay for it, even if you have the foresight. To think about where things are going to go it just it, it keeps coming back to cost and i i don't want to be too much of a debbie downer i'm you know i think for the just the social justice and of thing criminal justice reform we will see you know i i'm very excited even just for decriminalization having practiced you know criminal law for a while you know you see a lot of stuff that just shouldn't be happening especially when it comes to the archaic uh, federal sentencing guidelines, which I think is going to be the biggest improvement. Um, it's just interesting now because it really is, it's two very different perspectives, one being the individual, the other, the commercial. And that actually kind of brings something else up and it, it ties in with the discussion about, you know, where are we falling short in terms of cannabis actually getting legalized is, do you think that, you know, hemp and marijuana, as it's defined under federal law, are really, do you think their interests are aligned here? And the reason I asked that question the way I did is some of the theories that Mitch McConnell in the Senate is behind hemp in Kentucky and has a vested interest in, you know, not having marijuana make its way through at the federal level. Do you think that those two industries are going to coexist or do you think that they are going to conflict? That's a really good question. Um, you know, and the, the irony is that it's the same, <laughs> it's the same plant. Right, right. no, I know. It's exactly the same plant. Um, you know, I, I think THC and CBD are gonna continue to get very different treatment along the way. Um, uh, I don't think necessarily the interest of hemp out of alignment with the interests of the THC side of, 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 of that, of, of that plant. Um, ideally, you know, ideally they're, they're, they're regulated within a framework that is related and closely intertwined again, because it is the, it is the same, the same plant and all these, you know, um, uh, two to one CBD to THC products, eighteen to one CBD uh, to THC products. You know, those are those are largely hemp derived, right? Or plants that are cultivated um, again because it is the same plant. And what we, you know, what the what the cannabis industry and what the consumer could benefit from is being able to take you know, that CBD oil, regardless of it's grown from cannabis or hemp, since it is the same plant and be able to put those into a cannabis product. Cause they're, it's all, it's all cannabis, you know, sativa L 
it's all the same plan. Um, so hopefully they'll continue to evolve those frameworks together. I think THC, um, especially if the if the Senate's hold if the Republicans hold on to the Senate, uh, I think THC uh, that march towards legalization is going to be a lot harder and it's going to require a little bit more fight. Um, uh, and CBD and hemp will continue to have a have a, have a, hopefully a pragmatic framework built around it. But, um, I think they're going to continue to be treated somewhat differently moving forward by the feds. And the contradictions that you just brought up, I think, is another thing that might move the, the needle for cannabis as well federally, because like you said, it's really the distinction between hemp and marijuana under federal law is really just a legal one. And we're just talking about a distinction in the amount of, of THC, the 0.3% marker being uh, kind of the benchmark. And the reason I think that that actually may move the needle a little bit and consolidate or result in a regulatory structure that consolidates cannabis or marijuana and hemp into the same structure, it's a law enforcement issue. Let's say I'm a cop and I just got a tip about, you know, a house grow that someone's growing hundred plants outside. I serve a warrant. I um, execute the warrant and I seize all the, the marijuana as I at least think it's marijuana. And then I let it sit in an evidence locker for six months and don't test it and it deteriorates. If, if you can't, it's not like a cop can look at a plant that they allegedly believe is marijuana and tell you it's marijuana. You have to test it for THC. And, you know, I don't know that there's an officer out there that is going to, you know, testify and understand that he, can, he or she can tell by sight whether or not it's temper, you know, marijuana in terms of the THC percentage. So I think that tension in terms of the detection issues, and you're seeing it happen with interstate shipments left and right of hemp, um, you know, you can, I would advise anybody doing that to make sure you have your the COAs and whatnot, certificates of analysis in terms of the testing to show that it's hemp. But, you know, there is definitely an education gap with law enforcement in terms of the, the minute differences between hemp and marijuana that I think maybe enough of a tension um, to kind of move this needle forward and hopefully consolidate the two, acknowledging the differences. And I think what we didn't talk about is, and I think what you'll see a resurgence of is the industrial uses of hemp. I think we're talking about it in terms of like extracted cannabinoids, because that's what you're seeing over the last five years or so, by and large, um, not even five years, I guess it passed in really in 2019 after the 2018 farm bill, but you get the point. Um, but I think that, to me, is the future of hemp, just personally. I think the future of hemp is truly in the, in the industrial uses. Yeah. And I think it's, it's particularly the future of hemp when, cannabis, or when marijuana is legalized federally. Um, but like you said, there's also strains specific to hemp that are going to be higher in CBD and whatnot. So maybe that, that, that's not the case. But that's been kind of put on the back burner, it feels like, in terms of the industrial uses, and I hope that changes. Yeah, I think the industrial uses will come as, you know, more and more hemp comes on the market. Um, you know, more and more states have, you know, have adopted um, guidelines for cultivating it. You know, but, you know, I think another big reason that, that 
those two frameworks of the THC and CBD <laughs> to be put together is, you know, as more and more people grow fields of hemp, um, specifically for, for oil, um, you know, depending on what state you're in, you have different testing requirements and different times that you, that you can test for those COAs. Uh, in California, you're allowed to test 30 days before you harvest. Well, you know, anybody that grows hemp knows that those last 30 days, a lot can happen. And there aren't the mechanisms in place um, other than burning the crop of what do you do when that hemp turns hot. So um, really the, you know, if the feds are gonna, you know, legalize hemp cultivation, um, there also should be a mechanism in there of kind of how to remediate this in every state needs to needs to consider it because the alternative isn't great, right? If you're the farmer and your hemp tests at 1% as opposed to 0.3%, uh, okay, so now you have to burn it, you know, after you've invested, you know, however many hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars into this effort, you know, or are you going to do something else with it? Right. And yeah. you know, as being from California, you know, we are this world's largest exporter of illicitly grown uh, cannabis. And, you know, certainly we watch it every day as it makes its way across the country and around the world. And so if those if if the if regulations don't include mechanisms for um, how to how to you know, mitigate a, a, a hot hemp crop. Um, or even just are sensible for cannabis, you know, we're going to continue to see product end up in the illicit market. You're seeing the same exact issue play out on the international stage too, because especially when it comes to hemp, you're seeing 1% in certain countries, 0.3% in others, and it's just going to ultimately stifle, you know, the market in terms of import export. I can't remember where they can't, I, there is logic behind the 0.3%. I can't escape escaping me right now in terms of where they came up with that. But, you know, it's just, it, you're seeing almost the same thing play out because if you're serious about getting into the hemp space, space domestically in the United States, you know, without the, you know, without real guidance and uniformity at the federal level, you, you really need to be doing due diligence into each state not only that you're selling into, but that you're manufacturing or, you know, otherwise cultivating. And you're, it's almost like a very, very similar um, regulatory structure in terms of state versus federal programs is beginning to, de to develop in the context of hemp. So in the same way that, you know, we have states that are just coming up with their own programs in spite of federal law it, when it comes to cannabis or marijuana, we're having hemp programs. I think they're just, or hemp states basically just getting sick of waiting for the feds and the FDA to kind of give guidance and just coming up with their own rules. Obviously the big difference there is that hemp was removed from the Controlled Substances Act. So there's less of a conflict, but it's, it's, uh, it's almost a similar situation in terms of operating that's developing in terms of having to really do your homework in the jurisdictions that you're looking to operate in, um, in the same way that you know you need to look in, into California's regs and licensing structure, 
if you want to get licensed there and the same deal if you want to do it in Michigan or Massachusetts when it comes to marijuana. So it's interesting. I, uh, I hope we see movement or I hope we at least see the enforcement guidelines that we were supposed to get months ago now from this, the uh, FDA sooner rather than later. And I, it would be interesting to know, you know, what really is the holdup here and all of this, but. Could be an election. Uh, <laughs> imagine that, right? Um, There's no politics in this stuff, right? No, no. I mean, yeah, I guess I won't go down that rabbit hole, but it, that could be its own conversation offline. But uh, all right, I think we can kind of cap it off there. I think we're at about 45 minutes. Do you have any kind of closing statement you want to give here? Or? No, uh, this has been good. Um, you know, we've got certainly a lot more topics that I think we can start kind of getting into, you know. Um, you know, the California regulations, you know, uh, 280E. Uh, yeah. So stay tuned. Yeah, and I'm, I, if anybody is interested in it, actually, I can have up to six people on the screen at a given time. If you're interested uh, in suggesting a topic or actually even just speaking with us, um, I'm all ears. And I'm, I'm particularly excited to talk to people, not only in California, but outside of California, because I feel like, you know, at a certain part, at a certain point, we kind of live in our bubble here. You know, and we have our own issues in terms of what's going on, licensing, compliance, and legal stuff. I'm always interested to hear uh, what's going on in other jurisdictions. So definitely reach out to one of us if you're interested. Um, otherwise, we'll we'll call it a day there. And I hope everybody has a good weekend. Thank you.